seat, please. I'm wondering if this morning Lance and Jenna may need some security as they leave the building. They have come into our house and tried to steal and successfully stolen Eric and Lori from us. As much as you will miss Eric and Lori, please treat their family with love and respect. Uh, we, we love you guys. We will miss you. Um, I know that the, the impact you've had on this congregation being here for such a long time, um, it's been a blessing to all of us. And we know it'll also be a blessing to you guys as you um, just continue what God has in store um, for you. So we do pray that you go with God. There's a form of art. We've talked about this before, where it's the inversion of most art, where the image is whatever you draw. And this form of art, you'll see an example of it here, is where whatever is left is the picture. So if you look specifically at the moon, they didn't draw the moon, they drew black around, and what was left becomes uh, the moon in that image. And it just illustrates that there are two ways to come to find out what something looks like. And one is by drawing the actual image and saying, this is what it looks like. And the other is by saying, this is what it's not. And if you actually have a really, really good idea of what something is not, that helps to then paint the picture of what something is. And so what we're going to do is we're going to basically follow this form of art as we look at Romans chapter 14 and 15. We're following up on a sermon that we did last week. And here we're going to talk about this is what it's not. And the more we understand what it's not, I think that helps us to give a clear picture of what it is. So this morning what we're going to do is we're going to look primarily at the ways it is misapplied and um, can be misused. So if you want to know what it is saying, that was our sermon last week, and this week is more about what this text is not saying. But just as a very quick reminder, there is in the church of, in Rome a disagreement between some who Paul calls weak in faith and some Paul calls strong. And the weak in faith are those who will eat only vegetables. They judge one day to be better than another, and they do not drink wine. The strong are those who eat anything. They judge all days to be alike, and they drink wine. And so what we want to face, what we want to look at this morning is, well, in what situations do we have today that there's a parallel to the kinds of situation that Paul talks about in Romans uh, chapter 14 and 15? And so I, I did what I think any good Bible student would do. I just Googled the answer. So if you were to Google um, the things that say, th these are the, the lessons that this can be applied to, here's the options that, that you will find. Radios, TV, music, drinking wine, dancing, shorts above the knees, v-necks, shopping malls, caffeine, smoking cigarettes, smoking cigars. I didn't know there was a differentiation between those two, but apparently maybe one's a sin, one's not. I don't know, but it was on the list. Tattoos and gambling. So this just gives you a sense of, of the kinds of things that people will say, this is parallel to the very thing that Paul is talking about. And so what I want us to do this morning is to explore the question whether they really are parallel. Um, one of the things that we do whenever we interpret the Bible is we say, is this very similar to that or is it more dissimilar? And the more dissimilar it is, we're, we're going to have to do a little bit more work and figure out how exactly that might apply to something that we are addressing. And so we're going to look at some things to be careful about when trying to apply um, Romans 14 and 15 to something happening today. And the first 
thing to be careful about, the first warning is to be careful when applying something from one type to another. We have a phrase for that, don't we? Well, that's comparing apples and oranges, okay? Um, and specifically here in this passage, I think that what we need to realize is that what Paul is doing in this text is he is comparing the cross and its impact on Jewish tradition or Jewish distinctiveness, whichever language you want to use. And many of those things you saw on our list are comparing the cross and Christian morality. So we want to just parse out whether that really is a fair um, sort of comparison between these two things. So here's what's happening in Romans 14. If you got the handout, this image will be on your handout. There are people who have grown up in, within the story of Israel, within the story of here's what God seeks, here's what God wants. And they're, they're walking along that faith journey, and then all of a sudden, what gets dropped in front of their pathway is the cross of Jesus Christ. And now they have to figure out, in what ways is the cross like a door that gets slammed shut that says, this cannot come forward into this new relationship with God. And, and what are the things that says, um, it'll be opened a little bit, that some of these things can come through. And what are the things that's wide open, saying these things get carried over? The weak in Rome are those who, when they encounter the cross, they want to bring forward eating, um, refusing to eat meat, um, not drinking wine, and honoring certain days. And so that's really the question. The question is, does the cross permit these things to be carried forward into the life of a Christian? Now, one of the things to be very clear about, and, and Paul will clarify this in other letters, Galatians is a great example. If you want to put this thing before the cross, eating meat or drinking wine or honoring days, that, that, that this becomes a means to enter into a righteous relationship with God, Paul will always say, can't do it. You know, I'm, I'm going to be circumcised in order to get into a right relationship with God. Paul's going to say, can't do it. I'm going to observe food laws so that I can get into a right relationship with God. Paul will say, can't do it. But the question in Rome is not, does this come before the cross? It's saying, now that I'm a Christian, am I permitted to continue practicing these things? Because I believe that God actually smiles when I continue to um, observe these food laws. So, so I'm not going to drink wine. I'm not going to eat meat. I'm going to observe days. And I think that God still smiles. I don't think I'm saved by that thing, but I think it makes God happy. And so that's the context about what Paul is talking about and addressing. And, and they believe that they're doing these things in honor of the Lord. That's why Paul differentiates between the weak and the strong. And specifically in 1 Corinthians 14, it's important to notice he says they are weak in faith. You will hear in this context language about conscience. Some people have a weaker conscience. Some people have a stronger conscience. That's all in 1 Corinthians 8. That's not the conversation that we're having here in Romans. Um, and so the issue of faith is this. The cross comes and it enters in here. And what does the cross do about these things? We, we know clearly the cross doesn't make these things necessary for salvation, but, but some think that I can continue to practice. And so the weak who say, and it, it's this, it's saying, they're looking back at that old way and they're saying, I think God's still pleased by this. And their faith is weak in the sense that Christ has annulled the necessity of all of those things. But their faith isn't such that they're, they're going to be able to trust God in the midst of that particular thing. And so Paul says this is about their faith. And so the weak are very specifically those who want to live more restrictive lifestyles when it comes to their Jewish distinctions and when it comes to their traditions. The strong then are those who are more permissive. They're saying the cross took care of all of that. The cross solved all of that. 
there's no longer any need to continue living in either of those ways. But what we do sometimes is we take that and we want to apply it to all of these sorts of things. Do you notice that most of these are about morality, not about Jewish tradition or not about distinctives? And I just want to know whether that's, a, whether that's a good thing to do and whether that's a safe thing for us to do to apply it in all of these different ways. In order to figure out if these two things apply, then we need, we need to tell the same story and see if the same answers come. So um, Israel had its own story of morality. Here's how a moral person lives, and the cross comes, and it inserts itself in the middle of that story. And the question is, do we say after the cross, now those moral things that we once held to, that now we say, ah, the free Christian is the one who realizes we no longer have those moral obligations that we once did. So is that what happens in Scripture as you move forward? So I want us to just look at a few of Jesus' teachings about the relationship, morally speaking, between what came before and what proceeds. It says, You have heard that it was said to those of ancient times, You shall not murder, and whoever murders shall be liable to judgment. But I say to you that murder's okay because that was the old way of living. Oh, sorry, I may have misread that. Let me try again. But I say to you that if you're angry with a brother or sister, you will be liable to judgment. Not only does Jesus say, you know, there's certain things that we need to shed or to leave behind. It actually seems to me that he's trying to raise the standard. He's trying to call for more. He has a higher expectation. So then what does Jesus say in Matthew 5, 27? You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, that was the old way of living. And now whoever commits adultery is a stronger Christian. Is that? Oh, actually, no. It says... Whoever looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. You see the danger of trying to take Paul's teachings about distinctive Jewish things and apply that to morality because we're going to mess up how we understand the impact of the cross on the strong and the weak. The better you understand the cross, the more you will understand you need less Jewish distinctives those practices of food laws and Sabbath and all that. But I don't think that's true of our morality. I actually think the better we understand the cross, we're going to call each other to higher morals. And that's just important to notice because when we start to think about weak and we start to think about the strong, and I know several of you, I don't know who is the weak and who is the strong. If you apply it to morality, the concern is this. You would have to say that the person who is willing to wear the shortest shorts is actually the more better Christian. And, and you who say, my shorts need to be down to my knees or even a little bit further, well, that's just because you're weaker. And the stronger Christian is the Christian who's willing to drink more alcohol than the person who won't. You, you see how this, you're, that's going to get you into trouble. If you start saying whoever has more liberality in their morals is more honorable to God. And so we have to be very, very careful when we apply these things to morals because when they both meet at the intersection of the cross, they go different ways. And so the question really is, what does the cross demand of Christian living? That's the question I want to ask. So Paul's answering that question in regards to Jewish distinctiveness. And we just don't want to apply those principles to Christian morals because the cross doesn't do the same thing or have the same impact on Christian morals. We also need to be careful when applying this to issues where souls are not at stake. Here's kind of a little checklist 
say, okay, is this similar to that? Do the weak feel as if souls are at risk? They do in 1 Corinthians 14, or in Romans 14 and 15. And when the strong assess the situation, do they acknowledge that the soul of the weaker person is at risk? That's what Paul is helping to make the case about in this passage. And are both parties motivated by efforts to please God and honor God? A lot of times when we apply this to morals, especially that last category doesn't even apply. I mean, it's, it's really hard to say that people are doing the things they're doing because they want to please God. Most people make the case, well, this is permissive. This is something that I'm allowed to do. But the parallels that we give there can be dangerous. If we apply this to situations where souls are not at risk, and you can read over this list and decide where you think souls are not at risk, I actually think that if we think that souls are at risk in these things, I think we have a bigger problem than the questions about weak Christians and strong Christians. I think we actually have questions about a weak faith and a wrong faith. Paul says, what can separate us from the love of God? Remember him doing that back in Romans 8? And what are all the things that he listed there? What can separate us from the love of God? Uh, neither famine, nor persecution, nor disease, nor death. Actually, I might even have it up here. Yep. Where is tattoos on that list? I mean, the problem, if, if I'm taking some things that are not identified with the cross, and I'm making a salvation issue out of that, the concern is no longer, I need to respect your weaker faith. The concern is, I don't want to respect your misunderstanding of the cross. Because if Paul says these things cannot separate us from the love of God, and you're going to make a case that something smaller can, somehow there's a misunderstanding of the gospel there. And there's a misunderstanding of the cross. And we need to go back and we need to understand what really the cross is about and what really the cross does. You don't want to apply this passage to somebody who has a wrong faith and treat them as if they have a weak faith. Because the solution and the way that you would address it would be a completely different situation. At the heart of the issue, when it comes to these things, is we ask the question, how does the cross impact this situation? And it's going to either impact that person in a certain way, or it's going to impact how we respond to that person. I don't know if you've ever noticed in our culture when people use the word preaching, they always use it in a negative connotation. Have you ever heard someone like, hey, now you're preaching? Like they're happy about there? Like, oh no, now you've gone to preaching. All right, whatever negative connotation you have to preaching, I'm about to do that. Okay, I'm just going to warn you. So, so if you, I hope you got steel-toed boots on this morning. Because one of the concerns and one of the things that I have witnessed more often than not is people weaponizing these two chapters in the Bible. What weaponizing it means, means you take a scripture that God intended to function in one way, and you jump over here and you apply it over here to try to make it function in a way that's exactly the opposite of how God wanted it to function. And when you do that, you are weaponizing scripture. If you ever wonder if it happens, remember Jesus' conversation with Satan. Satan said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written. He's about to do what? Quote scripture, which means he's about to weaponize scripture. He's going to take what God intended for good, and he's going to say, oh, I'm going to see if I can use it over here. He says, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not dash your foot against a stone. That's weaponizing scripture. 
God intends it to, 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 to function in this way, and we say, I'm going to take it, and I'm going to load the gun, and I'm going to fire it this way for this aim or end over here. So we're going to go over several ways we can weaponize this particular passage. And the first is, we weaponize this passage when we apply it to others and not to ourselves. Paul has instructions for the weak and for the strong. And I guess as you read through this, you'll have to answer this question for yourself. But the question is, is Paul giving us the impression that he's asking the weak to police the strong? And when the strong aren't doing what the strong are doing, the weak say, hey, they didn't do it. I mean, they were supposed to not despise me and they were supposed to not cause me to fall, but they did. And as Paul addressing the strong, he's saying, hey, strong, what I want you guys to be most worried about is the weak over there. Make sure they're not passing judgment. And if they do pass judgment, I want you to go and pass judgment on them for passing judgment. Or as Paul saying, I'm going to tell you about what Christ did. And I hope when I do that puts a burden on your shoulder. And you will then be accountable to the burden that you feel in light of what the gospel has done in the example of Jesus Christ. What does Paul say? It is before their own Lord that they stand or fall. Three times he talks about their, this, their one's own role in this, which gives me the very distinct impression that the job of the church isn't to be policing each other's roles and responsibilities here that all are answerable. In fact, we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. And he's calling each one individually in light of the cross. You need to choose how you're going to respond in this situation. I think it's probably well known that when you do something you choose to do, it feels completely different than doing something you're forced to do, doesn't it? Um, I heard, I heard this story. I will keep it. Uh, it's, it's husband and wife story. I'll keep it the way it is. It can go either way. Um, but the husband's Friday morning, and he's looking at the weather, and he says, it's going to be a beautiful weekend. And the garage has been driving him crazy, and he wants to get in and fix it, and the weather's going to be nice. So he says, you know what I'm going to do this weekend? I'm going to clean the garage. He gets home from work on Friday night, and the very first thing that his wife does is says, that garage is driving me crazy. Before this weekend is over, you need to be out there in that garage, and you need to clean the garage. And he said, I cleaned the garage, and I hated every minute of it. It was his idea until somebody else tried to force him to do it, and by someone forcing him to do it, took all the joy away from it. And I guess the question is, as we look at this passage, is, is that what Paul's trying to do, is to force people into things? Or is Paul inviting the strong? Paul, I think, wants the strong to say, I choose to please Christ in this situation, and I will forego my rights. And when this happens, the strong can find joy in the fact that they are living in a way that follows the example, the self-giving example of Jesus. Remember what Jesus said about his own life? No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have power to lay it down. I mean, imagine the gospel story was a bunch of really strong people came and took Jesus and forced him to the cross. Does that change the gospel story at all? Absolutely. It is a choice to give up one's own life. And Paul is inviting the strong to walk in and imitate Paul's life. But have you ever heard someone say, well, I'm the weak Christian here, so you have to stop. That's weaponizing this passage. 
Because the passage isn't something that we use to hold one another to our certain standard. It's each responding to the gospel, giving up something that they have a right to. And when we give up things we have a right to, we follow the cross. See, I think what the weak can do is they can humbly and honestly go to the strong and say, this is how I feel. And then they leave it in the strong's hand to decide what that strong who's accountable to God, what they will do with where they are in their position. And I do believe, I do believe that the strong can hold the strong accountable and the weak can hold the weak accountable. Paul does that here, doesn't he? 15.1, he says, we who are strong ought to. So if, if somebody is strong and they're not giving, then another strong Christian needs to go to that person and say, hey, I know what you're saying is right. I, and I know we have the freedom and the liberality to do this, but we need to decide to give it up for the sake of that person. And the weak can go to the weak and can say, I, I know you're passing judgment on them and I want to pass judgment on them too, but we got to withhold our judgment. The problem comes when each thinks that their primary responsibility is to police the behavior of the other. Because this is a passage that is given to us so that we might respond to God, not a passage that's given for policing the strong and for policing the weak. The next way that we weaponize this passage, similar to what we covered, but we weaponize it when we use it as a play for power in order to manipulate others. Here's a, it's probably as close to 100% rule of thumb with scripture. If you're using scripture to hurt someone else, you're probably misusing scripture. If you're using scripture to fight for your own rights, you're probably not in honoring the intention of scripture. Paul says that we should live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Do not be claimed to be wiser than you are. This living in harmony is something that he wants the weak to do, and he wants the strong to do. And he wants both of them invested in this process. I think we see this type of manipulation in certain relationships. I have seen it happen in husband-wife relationships. When a husband says, you must submit to me, I would suggest he is weaponizing scripture. When a husband says to his wife, your body is not yours alone, he is weaponizing scripture. When an elder says to someone in the church, you better do what I say because you have to submit to me, he is weaponizing scripture. When a friend, when a, when a partner says, look, I already told you I'm sorry, and you claim to be a Christian, so you better forgive me or God's not gonna be happy with you, you are what? weaponizing scripture. We use scripture to manipulate people to do the things that we want them to do when scripture is used to get us to submit to the will of God. If we are to be like Jesus, it means we will lay down our lives for one another. And we hope people respond in the way they should but we never force them. We never hold them down to make them do what we want them to do. A third way that we weaponize scripture is when we hold 
when a, pa- when a person tries to use this to hold a whole church hostage. And I would say also that the church must decide that it will not allow itself to be held hostage. I think this is probably one of the most pervasive ways I've seen this passage weaponized. And really in a lot of ways it's a combination of all of these methods. This passage doesn't teach us that the greasy wheel gets the squeaky wheel gets the grease. The passage teaches us we should be living in a mutually loving relationship. And if somebody else steps back and says, you know what, they're all working so hard for unity, they're all sacrificing for each other, I think I can use this for my advantage. That person is weaponizing Scripture. There was a time when someone said, after what I think objectively would be a very minor change, said, if you don't stop this, I'm leaving. See any manipulation there? Any trying to hold hostage? And I understand and I recognize that there is a call for us to care deeply for one another. But I think that we also have to be smart enough to know the difference between people who are weak and people who are wreckers. And wreckers are people who they will say, I will find whatever scripture I need to find. I'm going to get whatever ammunition I need to get, but I'm going to get my way. I'm, I'm going to win. I'm going to be victorious here one way or another. Ultimately, in the situation of the person threatened to leave, that's not my responsibility, but our elders. But I encourage them to consider the fact that I don't know that we want to be a church where one person can just say, I don't like it. And then the other 160 people have to cave to one person. That's holding a group of people hostage. Because the intention from the beginning wasn't, I want to pursue peace. The intention was, I want you to do what I want you to do. And I believe strongly that that's weaponizing this passage. How do you tell the difference between the weak and between a wrecker? A wrecker will use the strategies that we've seen. They will seek to manipulate people. They will seek to make others do things. They will pay attention to what everyone else is doing. They will make demands. You will be able to tell a wrecker by their attitude and their disposition. I think churches should always be sensitive to the weak, but always be aware of those who are wreckers who try to use Scripture to their own advantage. I don't believe that Paul is teaching here leadership by the lowest common denominator. Have you ever heard the phrase, your team is only as fast as your slowest member? I don't think that's what Paul's talking about here. Paul says this is an issue where this is a, 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 a disputed matter, which is very different than saying this is an issue where one person doesn't like something. And the disputed matter means there's a group of people who have very different ideas, and for the sake of unity, everyone is given a role and responsibility in pursuing unity. If you ever find yourself in a situation where one party is asked to do something and the other party is not asked to do anything, it does not parallel what we find in this passage because both are called to a certain kind of service. Now, to just be sure we don't end on a completely down note, 
I do want to just offer a piece of encouragement. I came across this uh, two guys, uh, Tim Mulhoff and Richard Langer, said, here's something to always remember when thinking about this passage, and I thought it was helpful, and you might remember. It says, be a chimp, not a rhino. Romans 14, 27 says, don't destroy the work of God for food. Apparently, the problem with a rhino is that a rhino can only see, uh, can't differentiate things that are 50 feet away from it. It has really poor eyesight. Maybe the world would be better if the rhino would go see an optometrist and get some glasses. But so the rhino doesn't know, is that a predator? Is that a person? Is that a tree? So the rhino only knows one thing to do, and guess what it is? I'm going to charge it. I'm going to attack it. The rhino is really good at destroying things because the only thing it knows to do is to head, head, head first and into and destroy things. The chimp, on the other hand, is very curious. You put something a chimp has never seen in front of it, guess what it does? It picks it up, it plays with it, it turns it over, it kind of shows its friends like, hey, look at this, what is this thing? And they're really, really curious, trying to find out what's happening, what's going on. I think that's the disposition that Paul wants us to have as Christians. I mean, how do we know how important something is to someone unless we what? We ask. Let's get real curious. Why is this so bothersome to them? Why does this hurt them so deeply? Why is this impacting them in that way? And as we get curious, the solution will become more clear. How do we handle this? How do we treat this? But Paul does want us to be a people that actively pursue whatever makes for peace and mutual upbuilding. And my prayer is that this passage will function in the way Paul intended it for our congregation. Which means I think that we need to be very aware of and sensitive to the needs of others. But also very aware of the fact that there are going to be some things that people just don't like. You know what I've said sometimes where people are like, I don't, I don't like this. I don't like this. You know what I've said sometimes? I said, that's probably good probably good for you to have to do something you don't like because there's going to come a time where we might ask you to do something you really don't like and unless you can practice in this really little way you're not going to have the capacity to do it when it becomes something really big I mean, there are 160 people here which means we're going to have to get really really good at what being open-handed giving up our rights and following christ in his footsteps and as we achieve to do that i pray that the lord will bless you and keep you that the Lord would make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. I do pray that the Lord will turn towards you and give all of us the peace of God. So may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. We give an opportunity for prayers. We give an opportunity for people to talk about where they are in their spiritual lives. And so if you have some kind of a need, we invite you to come to the back while we stand and sing this next song together. Let's stand.